0: You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from John 2:1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay,
0: well, um, if you're new to Sacred City, uh, you've joined us at a perfect time. We just recently started a new sermon series uh, through the Gospel of John, which uh, is becoming one of my favorite gospels. It's hard to pick and choose your favorite books of the Bible, but I've really, really enjoyed the book of John so far, and we're only a chapter into it. Um, and the book of John is essentially broken down in three different sections. You have the introduction in chapter 1, which we wrapped up last week, that's really focused on who is Jesus. John introduces Jesus as, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. This unique Son of God that had glory that only a Son of God can have. And last week we even saw how like eight different facets of Jesus' identity gets laid out before us. So really, the beginning of of John's John's gospel is focused on on who Jesus is, and as we move into chapter two, we start the next section of the book of John, which, which is called the book of signs, which runs from John chapter two through John 12, and this, this section of John's gospel is really focused on revealing to us, through Jesus's teaching, his, his, his conversations, and the works of Jesus, signs um, that he does, pointing to the glory of Jesus, and then the rest of John's gospel is called the book of glory, which is, is a, a total revelation of the glory of God in Christ, and so as we begin John chapter two today, uh, we just realize that the focus shifts to what Jesus does as He begins revealing to his, revealing His glory. To his people. He's like kind of laying out breadcrumbs through his ministry. And we see this very first act of, of revealing his glory. It's summarized in verse 11, which is read this morning here. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what happened? It says, And his disciples believed in him. So Jesus reveals his glory. He, he shows who he is. He demonstrates. And those who see now, believe. Now, one way Jesus manifests his glory through these 10 chapters that we'll be diving into, um, and to manifest glory means to make obvious, right? To, to, like if there were a veil that were concealing it, just for a momentary lift, and that glory becomes undeniably plain before people. One of the ways that Jesus manifests his glory is through his miracles, or John calls them signs, Now, what's interesting is that in John's gospel, there are only eight miracles that are chronicled here. And um, comparatively to the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have way more. There's way more miraculous things that happen, and they document and they tell about all of this stuff. But John limits his scope to eight, and six of those eight are unique to his gospel alone, meaning you won't find them in the other three gospels. Now, John has some strategy here. He, he's, he's doing something intentional by limiting himself. And, and actually, John does say at the end of his gospel that Jesus did far more miracles. In fact, if he, Jesus did so many miracles that if you were to try to chronicle them and, and compile them all into a book, it would fill the world, right? So it's not that John didn't see miracles. He saw lots of them, but he limited them to these eight and six unique miracles. Now, when we talk about mo- uh, miracles, a lot of modern people bristle at the idea of the miraculous, the idea of the supernatural, things that happen outside of of the typical expected norms of life and and the rules that God has imposed on us. So they see the miraculous, they see how these things operate outside of the box and they sort of push away. There's now a great example of this is uh, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson um, basically built his own Bible Um, where he snipped out all of the miraculous parts because he he dismissed them. It was unscientific. It wasn't plausible. He he snipped out all of the supernatural miraculous things and snipped out the things that he didn't like about Jesus till he boiled it down. All he had left was the morals of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And that's kind of what happens with modern people today. We like Jesus, we like his teaching, we like his miracle, or his, 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 what he has to say to us, but this miracle stuff doesn't quite fit within our framework of understanding. So people push, it's not plausible, it seems like fake news. Maybe the people that are writing this down are misled, they're really gullible. Like, it's like just thinking of Jesus as like a, a first century David Blaine or something. Everybody, it's magic or it's some sort of trickery, but nobody can actually pinpoint. But, but in reality, it, it truly is the miraculous. And what I want to share this morning or at least point you to initially here is uh, to be a Christian, we have to embrace the miraculous to to um, belief in the miraculous is not a an auxiliary piece of Christian life. It's not like you, you get the the core tenets of, of Of the faith, and then if you're super Christian and you have extra faith, then you can maybe move toward believing. And no, the miracles are essential for Christianity for two reasons. Let me share with you quick. So, first, um, as we'll continue to see through the Gospel of John, to deny Jesus' miracles, to deny the miraculous, is to deny who Jesus is because what we'll see later on in John chapter 10 is that the miraculous actually reveals something to us about Jesus, it tells us that Jesus is God. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that, that he and the Father are one, in other words, Jesus is God, and we're told in scripture that with God, all things are possible. So for God, it's possible to do the miraculous, to break the bounds of the natural, and, and, and do something outside of our framework of understanding. And if you don't believe me, you can go visit people like Abraham and Sarah or Daniel or Moses and see how God has done the impossible. And so this points to Jesus' identity. His miracles, are, are, they bear witness to Jesus' identity. To deny miracles is to deny who Jesus is. The second thing that makes miracles, the miraculous, essential for Christianity is that without miracles, without the miraculous, the resurrection of Jesus is impossible Right, that, that's the greatest miracle of all, the resur- that on the third day, G- God in his power raised Christ from the dead. Now, if we can't believe in the miraculous, we can't believe in the resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no Christianity. The miraculous is essential for Christianity. And in fact, every, every miracle that we'll see documented in, in any of these gospel accounts is a primer for this glorious resurrection that we see on the third day. Now, what's interesting is, you say on the third day he was raised again, as the Apostles' Creed says. What's interesting, um, I don't think it's a coincidence at all, but the opening line of our passage today says on the third day. On the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. On the third day, the beginning of Jesus' miracle is noted on the third day. John is is making connections for us. He's he's using a literary structure to help us identify what he's trying to get to. And so he starts out by saying, on the third day, and boom, Jesus starts performing miracles. Let me just state my goal this morning. My goal, my intent is not to convince you the legitimacy of these miracles. I'm not going to do some like uh, apologetic work to prove to you that this actually happened. It did. You just got to deal with it. This really is true history. Nor am I going to use this passage to talk about how Christians ought to relate to, to alcohol Which if I were to do that, and there's probably a fitting time to talk about that relationship, this is probably a place where I take you. That's not the point that John's trying to make here today. What I want to show you today in in this text is show you that this miracle or this sign, as John calls it, is pointing to something. That's what signs are for. Signs point us to something. There's something in front of us that say beyond this, there's something more to be seen. And what this thing is, is Jesus's glory. Jesus doesn't do miracles for miracles' sake. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do miracles just as like some cool party trick, right? Everybody's standing around bored. is like, can, what kind of stupid trick can you do? And Jesus is like, watch this. So I got to turn water to wine. It's not, it's not a party trick. Jesus' miracles are actually very purposeful. They point... To something, And so I, I want to dig into this. And like the disciples, when they see what Jesus did, when they see his glory manifested, they move to belief. And so I'm praying that the Lord today, as we move through this te- text, the Lord will open up our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus and his glory and that we might too believe in him. So let's open up together, if you wanna grab your Bible, um, to John chapter two, we'll set the stage of this very familiar text. Uh, Most of you, if you've grown up Bible stories, um, you're familiar with this. There's a a, a wedding feast. Jesus, his mother, and uh, his freshly called disciples are at an anonymous wedding. We don't know who's getting married, um, but this is definitely an infamous wedding now. They show up to a wedding, and like our culture, first century weddings are a huge deal, right? Big celebration. You get family together, there's food, there's feasting, there's, there's drink, there's wine, there's, there's music. It's, it's a, a great celebration. And in our culture, it's usually just like one night. You get one big night, really blow it all out, wedding celebration, wedding reception. For first century Jews, wedding celebrations, it was very common that they would last a whole week. Just a week of celebrating this new marriage that had been established. And what would happen is, they, they would start with the very best things. So they, they, at the beginning of the celebration, at the beginning of the banquet, they'd bring out the best food, they'd bring out the best wine, they'd have the best bands playing in the corner. And, and they'd just jam out all night, it would be a celebration, and, and what happens is that as the week progresses, or as the celebration progresses, the quality of the things starts to dwindle away a little bit. So, uh, as, as the week progresses, the food may not be as top, top level, and the drink may no longer be the finest wine, but it's still wine nonetheless. And the music, well, it, it goes from like having Taylor Swift to maybe, I don't know, some, some dive bar cover band singer. So I don't know, you know, you get the idea. Like it just sort of dwindles away in its quality. And the purpose behind this is as people celebrate, the longer they celebrate, the more likely they are to be a, a bit intoxicated and they just can't notice the difference, right? That, that's why, uh, as we see, the, the banquet master says, everybody brings out the best wine first, and then they bring out the poor wine because they can't taste And And this is actually a phenomenon that makes a lot of sense. This is how, essentially, uh, Taco Bell has been kept in business for all these years. College kids, late nights, you get the idea. You just can't taste it anymore. And so that's free thought. Um, and so anyway, we are here at a wedding. Big celebration, and at this wedding, we have a worst-case scenario. Which you might think at a wedding, worst-case scenario would be for somebody to be left at the altar. But that's not the case. Like uh, that would be better than what we're about to see here. Is as we see, they run out of wine. They they they've run out of their supply that was meant to last them for the whole celebration, and now they've they've hit the bottom. It's dry. You've probably been at a wedding before, where maybe um, the celebration starts off like they tap a couple kegs. It's on the bride and the groom, and that gets burned through pretty quickly. And then it opens up to a cash bar. And that scenario, right? You're not really running out of it, but but the idea of what the hosts provide runs out, and then it's kind of a bummer to now it's a cash bar. And you know, I think there's some wisdom behind that, but to us that's a an inconvenient bummer, right? That scenario to run out of of wine or drink would be an inconvenient bummer not really that big of a deal per se but in first century jewish culture this this isn't just inconvenient to run out of wine was downright embarrassing and actually uh, embarrassing the word doesn't do it just it, it goes even deeper than that um, to run out of wine at a celebration like this would be deeply shameful and humiliating for the bride and the groom and, and specifically for the groom. Now, in our culture, typically it's the bride's family that pays for most of, of the celebrations, which makes me glad that I have four boys and not four girls, partially, so I'm selfish there. Um, but, but in Jewish culture, it would be the groom who is responsible for financing this celebration. And so he, he's responsible financially for providing everything, all of the celebration. And if, and if they run out of whatever, whether it be food or wine or whatever it might be, it's a poor reflection on him. It's his shame. It's his embarrassment. It's his humiliation. And, and the idea behind this is that if he can't fund a party... If he can't pay for people to eat and drink and be merry, how will he ever provide for his wife and his family? Now, this not only carries shame and humiliation, but even worse, it opens him up to a lawsuit. In the first century, it was, there's, there's evidence that if, if a groom didn't provide enough for the banquet of his wedding, that his in-laws were able to pursue legal action. They were able to sue now, you want to talk about contentious start to an in-law relationship, right? You get married, and right away, you're dealing with a lawsuit from your bride's parents. It makes things a little uncomfortable. But, but it's that serious of a thing that if you run out of, of wine. Now, Mary, Jesus' mother, sees that the wines run dry, and she has compassion for the couple and she lets Jesus know in verses 3 through 5 she says when the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him they have no wine and Jesus said to her woman what does that have to do with me my hour has not yet come his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you now based Based on Jesus' response to his mother, it seems like Mary has some sort of expectation of Jesus. She lets him know because she thinks he can do something about this. Growing up with Jesus, who knows? Who knows the things, the miracles, the the supernatural effect that Jesus had in his place? We don't don't have any account of that in the Gospels, but, but there's something that Mary knows about Jesus that causes her to expect that Jesus can do something, and so she applies her motherly pressure. She doesn't ask him to do something, but she applies her motherly pressure to Jesus. Now, moms, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know you know how to apply that mother, and, and kids, if you're aware, you, you know you know, moms have the ability to apply this motherly pressure to get what they want from you. And when we read this, the, Jesus' response, for some, might seem off-putting, and, and, and they wrongly label this as a disrespectful response. Because what happens, when Jesus responds... People often read this and overlay a rebellious attitude in it where Jesus says, when she says, hey, um, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what's that got to do with me? Right? You read that into it and you think that Jesus has this, this angsty attitude towards his mom. But really, the, the response that Jesus has to his mom um, would be a, a, to, to address her as woman um, is a cordial, respectful first century appropriate response, um, especially as an adult man to his, his mother. Now, we have to see this here. Jesus, in this response, um, he did not dishonor his mom. If, Jesus, if this was a dishonoring response to his mother, Jesus would not be able to pay for your sins because he'd be breaking the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And so we have to just right away, see, Jesus, this is not an angsty Jesus who's lashing out at his mom. This is a, an honoring, a respectful Jesus speaking adult to adult. Now, this interaction, this is not the main point of this text, but I, I think it's worth highlighting because we have a lot of, of mothers of future men here in this church, in this room, um, and so it's worth highlighting that this, is, this interaction demonstrates a transition that every mother and son must go through at some point. What happens as, as a son is brought up in his parents' household, um, his two greatest influences are his father and his mother. And oftentimes, um, the mom is the one who's the most present, especially in our culture where mom's at home with kids and, and dad's off to work. And so um, mom and dad together are a, a, a team, but there's this unique relationship between mother and son based on the fact that she's, she's raising him up. And after years of being under a mother's authority... Right, as we're commanded for, for children to obey your parents, for it to go well with you, as Ephesians 5 and 6 uh, tell us. 5, six tells us. Um, and that's something that we as parents ought to instruct our children in, to obey parents. God has given parents authority to instruct in obedience. But after years of being under a mother's authority as a boy into adolescence, there comes a time in a young man's life, in order to become a man where he has to respectfully push away. There's a transition in life where he goes from being under the authority of his mother to being under the authority of God and becoming his own authority to his own household. This transition, we don't don't talk about this often. Now, if, if he doesn't, make this transition of, of respectfully pushing away from his mother's authority. He, he cannot keep the, man, the command that God makes that, that a, a man shall leave his father and mother to, to leave and then to cleave to his wife. So this is something that scripture attests to. In order to become a man, he has to respectfully push away. Now in this respectful push away, in this, in this relocation of authority, of, of whose authority are you under, no longer under mom and dad's authority, but under God's authority directly in your own household, he still is charged with the fifth commandment to honor your mother and father. Now, in this season of life and adulthood, to honor your parents does not necessarily mean to obey your parents any longer, but it does mean to show regard and respect for them. And this is what we see Jesus doing here. Jesus, after hearing Mary's request, could have said, yeah, you're right, mom, I'll jump right to it. But instead... Jesus shows us that he's no longer under his mother's authority. In fact, as we move into John 14, Jesus says that he only does what the father tells him to do. So even if it's a good thing that his mother, like we see, she tells, she, so here's the deal. Mary brings this to Jesus' attention. He gives her this response where he's kind of pushing away from her authority, but then he still ends up doing it. Why? Not because his mom wants him to do it, because God the father tells him to do it. This is what we see in this episode. It's not the mother's pressure that causes Jesus to take action. It's the compassion and instruction from his father that leads him into this this endeavor. And so Jesus says to his mother, as he steps out from her authority and under God, the father's authority, he says to her, my hour has not yet come. Now, before I move on to that, um, mother's father's, Knowing that that transition point comes at some point in life means that we have only a limited amount of time to instill wisdom and virtue and character into our children, that when they step outside of our authority, they will carry on in the faith, right? That, that they will not be an authority unto themselves, but they will see the goodness and the beauty and the flourishing that comes when we place our life under God's authority. And End sidebar. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now, this, this term, the hour, this is a significant thing, and it really points to, to two different um, moments in history. First, The first thing that comes to mind is the hour of Jesus' death, right? That dark hour with the sun's eclipse where everything goes dark. Jesus, is, the Son of God, is murdered on a cross. But then there's another reference where the hour speaks to the glorification of Jesus, where all of of the things that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were moving towards become manifest, and and the kingdom, the, the glory is consummated. And so you have these two references, the term the hour referring to the death and the glorification of Jesus. But we have to realize that glorification, the hour of glorification of Jesus, can only come if the hour of his death comes before it. And as Christians, we remember this hour of Jesus where his body was broken, his blood was shed, and we remember it with bread and with wine. So Jesus is referring to my hour. It's not yet come. And, and instead of Mary giving this emotional react, like, don't you know that I carry you around for nine months in my belly? And I, you know, every diaper I change and She doesn't have that kind of emotional response to Jesus. She, she knows what's going on and she relinquishes her maternal authority in verse five. She says, She says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Mary says, Do whatever he tells you. Now, this is not only an exhortation for these servants here who are, who are tending to the banquet, this is an exhortation for us today. It, it's like, as if Mother Mary's voice is resonating, uh, reverberating through the cosmos, saying to us, Whatever he says, do it. Because where we sit in history, we're able to see that first hour that Jesus was referring to, the hour of his death, his crucifixion. We've seen that that hour has indeed come. And because that hour has come, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, the chains of sin that have enslaved us, that have have made us captive to our carnal appetites and selfish desires were broken and death was defeated. In that hour, Jesus crushed sin and death and he has freed us from its tyranny. In fact, in Romans 6.22, it says, now being freed from sin, right? Jesus relinquished us from the power, from the grip of sin. We are now freed to become servants of God. We are free to do all that He tells us to do. Now this means that we surrender. To Jesus as Lord. That's, that's what the posture of, of a servant of God is, to surrender to Jesus as Lord and to obey him in every area of life, because Jesus gave his life for ours. Now, the myth of the devil is that our culture is biting on real hard is that living this way, living in surrender and obedience to Jesus, to the Lord God Almighty, is that this is a stifling way to live. That if you subject yourself, live subjected to the authority and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you will then find yourself oppressed. The culture says real freedom, happiness, is found by following your heart. It's by living your true authentic self. Just whatever's there, just do it, cuz that'll make you feel real free. But in reality, the flesh, the carnal appetites that we are subjected to compounds the cursedness. Sin erodes Life, Sin, that's the lie that Satan's been telling since, since Eden is that if you do this, if you, if you push away from God, you, you disobey you do you pa- blaze your own path, you'll find the freedom that you're really looking for and really it just makes things worse. Yet we do it all the time. Whether we're self-medicating with sleep and sloth, using substances, beer, weed, drugs, using screen time, Netflix, and social media to, to numb us, to, to just follow the, the, the carnal appetites, or if it's sexual even, letting the desires of the flesh drive us around, and, and we just are essentially uh, our sexual appetites. That's all we boil boiled down to. And the lie is that if we follow those things, then we'll be happy, then we'll find life, but it's all a lie, it's a myth. I mean, this goes for those things as well as like, if you're trying to live, do what feels right. You know what feels right in the moment? Unforgiveness. Harboring bitterness in your heart. You know what feels right in the moment? Greed. These are all things that our culture promotes under the influence of of the spiritual powers of darkness, These are things that that our, our culture is gravitating towards because they think that this is where life is. But the scriptures tell us, if you pursue those things, if that's your end all, be all, it will leave death in your wake. It creates a death culture. Not human flourishing, not growth, not life, not happiness, not vibrancy. It will suffocate you. What the scriptures attest to is that the only path to true freedom, to true blessedness is to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, the true and good king. It's to fulfill what Proverbs 4, 4 says is to hold fast to Jesus's words, to keep his commands and live. That's where life is. That's where blessedness is. Because what obedience does, obedience to the Lord Jesus, who only gives us good commands, who only commands us to do things that will lead to human flourishing, when we obey, it produces blessing. Now, it might not be the kind of blessing that you expect where, you know, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you've got three Ferraris in your garage. It's not that kind of blessedness. But it cultivates a human flourishing I uh, like to think of it like like water that's bubbling up, a spring that's bubbling up, where, where people, not only yourself, but other people can drink from it and be satisfied, be, be content in that good blessedness that the Lord provides. So it's a blessedness. Your obedience does not, not just produce blessedness for you. It produces blessedness for others. Now, fathers, this makes sense because if you are the head of your home and you're leading your family in a Godward direction, You are saying, as for me and my house, uh, we will serve the Lord. And you yourself are living as an example of obedience and faith to Jesus Christ, your Lord. And you're calling your wife and your children to do the same. Your obedience will produce blessedness in other people. And we see this exact phenomenon happening with the servants at the wedding feast. When Mary says, whatever Jesus tells you to do, go do it. And the servants go, okay, And so they obey Jesus, and because of their obedience in this one instance, many people are blessed. We see this in verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew Jesus did it. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, right? When they're a little tipsy, then the poor wine is served, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now this this is scandalous what happens here. The groom was about to get hit by an atomic bomb of shame and humiliation. The groom was about to just, I mean, it was unavoidable. In front of his friends, in front of his family, in front of his in-laws, he was about to be just bulldozed by embarrassment. And what Jesus did in listening to his father, Jesus intervenes and he takes action to cover the shame of this couple he said there's, there's six jars each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons of water Jesus had them filled up to the brim and Jesus turns them water, water to wine guys you got, that's a lot of wine that, that's like 120 to like 180 gallons worth of wine and it's like good, good wine Great wine. And so what we see here about this, Jesus covers the shame of this couple. The thing that wine tells us one, quantity. There's an ample supply of this this wine that they need. And two, quality in the fact that the banquet master says this is the best wine that's been served yet. Jesus is not stingy. Now, oftentimes we see this quality and quantity. It's it's not a, It's not like, wow, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, even if you go back to John chapter one, from his fullness, from the fullness from God, he's poured out grace upon grace, right? It makes sense that Jesus who's full of the fullness, filled with the fullness, is pouring out grace upon grace, massive amounts of, of both quality and quantity. But what often happens is, is modern readers miss the significance of this. We, we There's a... a many Old Testament references, prophetic words that link this ample wine, where where's this a state of, of lots of wine flowing as an indicator of the messianic age. The messianic age is a, a time in history that the Jews knew it was coming. One day, it's in the future, it's, it's coming. This messianic age where the Messiah, the anointed one, will come and and all authority will be given to him. He will rule and he will reign throughout, well, what they just thought was Israel. Um, Turns out it's a lot bigger than that. Um, He'll rule and he'll reign and and under his rule and his reign, the shalom of Eden that was lost in Genesis 3 will be restored to God's people. The, The peace, the fullness, the abundance, the joy, the life, the vibrancy and this land that the Messiah reigns over will be flowing. I mean, you can even hear the promise that flowing with milk and honey, except for now it's flowing with wine. The vines are ample, all kinds of fruit, all kinds of wine just pouring out. It's a big celebration. Now, in this moment, as Jesus makes globs and globs of wine, what he is doing is he is announcing that the Masonic age has begun. The Messianic, not Masonic, that's the Messianic age has begun. He's saying to people at the wedding, whether they can see it or not, his disciples are picking up on it, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've brought it with me. And each miracle that we see through John's gospel, through any other gospel, is an episode where the kingdom of heaven is breaking through down here on earth. That's the significance of this. It's the glory of God and his kingdom breaking through the cursed world that we occupy. Now, this is why this passage isn't just a happy passage for this couple, right? We read this, it's like, oh man, it would have been nice for that couple. What a blessing, great wedding gift, good for them. But this passage isn't just good news for them. This is good news for us. Today, right now, this is a a call of good news because what this is is a sign that points forward to the good news of the gospel for all people, which Jesus says, I've got you covered. All your sins, all your failures, all your guilt, your shame, anything that the enemy uses to accuse you of wrongdoing or inadequacies, Jesus says, I've got you covered. For all the ways you failed to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For all the times that you've pushed back and said, I can be my own king, I can be my own queen. I've got some kind of autonomy. For all the times you failed to live up to God's standard, perfect standard. Jesus has you covered with the abundance of his mercy and his grace. It's from his fullness. Remember, fill to the brim. It's from his fullness we receive grace upon grace at the hour of the cross. And it's in Jesus' own obedience to the heavenly father that we receive blessings. Do you see that? Because of his obedience, blessing trickles down to us. This is the power of God's grace that's presented to us in the person and work of Jesus. This this good news of great joy for all people transforms us. When when God moves, when grace meets us, it doesn't leave us in the same place. God's grace is meant to transform you. See, just, just like Jesus turned water into wine, when we receive the grace of God, it changes us from death to life like that. And as we live in the life that Christ affords us, we're being transformed and sanctified. Now, it's interesting. I wish I had more time to dig into this. But the water jars that were there were used for purification rites. Right? The Jewish practice of washing and being clean, um, it was just a tradition that they had as Jewish people where you're just, wherever you go, you kind of wash yourself up, especially for nice, nice things. This idea, Jesus connects the ample grace, the fact that he's got you covered, to this idea of purification, that the water of purification becomes wine. And in this, we see that, that it bringing us from death to life, Jesus is sanctifying us. He's, he's purifying us day by day, moment by moment, as each grace, new days, new days of new mercies find us so that we would be made fit for the kingdom of heaven. Listen, without the purification of Christ's blood applied to your life, you would hate heaven. Without the work of Christ changing your heart from loving what is wicked to loving what is good, true, and beautiful, you would hate it. But, but when Christ transform us, transforms us, when he, he regenerates the sinner... He gives us new appetites. He gives us new longings. He gives us a new identity to live out of. Our our telos, our end goal, our, our pursuit in life changes. And through this, we desire to become like Jesus. And in this, Jesus makes us fit for the kingdom of heaven. This is what's going on in justification and sanctification. Now, interestingly, the Bible starts with the wedding. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Adam and Eve get married, a wedding, big, big party. Um, Jesus' ministry starts at a wedding. And the Bible ends with a wedding. The thing that this is all moving to is, is communicated to us. In fact, the Apostle John is the one who writes this down. He speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, this banquet of the Lamb. He speaks of this in in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Listen to this. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. There's his Lordship. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? Because he's glorious. Our worship goes to that which is most glorious. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, blessed, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What we see here in this moment, this, this banquet, this is the hour. This is the hour of glorification where Jesus's reign is established both in heaven and on earth where there's rejoicing and praise and worship because the glory of Christ, which has worked in salvation and is working to renew all things in the cosmos, is being manifested for us to see plainly. All things sad are becoming untrue. At this marriage supper of the Lamb, the glory of Jesus Christ is fully manifested In that the Lamb has taken for himself a bride, an undeserving bride, a bride who must be purified, and to do so, he pours out his own blood to do it. She's been cleansed, she's been purified by the blood. Now, of course, when we come to the meal, the Lord's table, we have the bread. We have the wine, which is a reminder of the blood that was shed to forgive us, to purify us of sins. And we see that in this purification, that the bride has made herself ready, and she's been clothed in the righteousness that Jesus provides. Now, this glorious day awaits those who have believed in the work of Jesus if the eyes of your heart have been opened and you see the glory of Jesus manifested in, in this gospel account of, of him turning water to wine and then all of the other things that place and there's glory in the crucifixion, and there's glory in the resurrection and the glory in consummating the kingdom of God once and for all, if the eyes of your heart have seen this, then you get to participate. God invites you. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. These are the true words of God. And so that's what this is pointing forward to. The sign, this miracle, is pointing forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until that day comes, until we are seated with Christ at the banquet table, the bride of Christ, adorned in glory that Christ has afforded her, every week we gather to have a mini meal in, pre- in preparation for that grand banquet. Every week, the church comes together to share in the body, the bread of Christ, and the blood, the wine. And this, this meal is meant to point us in three different directions. One, it points us back to the hour of Christ's crucifixion where his body was broken and his blood was shed to atone for sin, to, to provide purification for sin. This meal points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this meal meets us right where we're at today so that we can live faithfully in a world that is hostile to God, in a world that wants to reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ, where we can say, We will serve you. Whatever you say, we will do. And the Spirit of God works in us to produce gospel
1: obedience.
0: This is what we are participating in when we come to the table. So this morning, Christian, let us eat with gratitude for Christ has paid the price. He has covered your sin fully. Let us eat anticipating what is to come with gladness that that the end fills us with joy and the heart of victory that, that creates boldness and courage in us to live now in line with God's will, with Jesus as Lord. It's by his grace and his grace alone that we can do this. Let's pray. Gracious Father, We thank you that your will is perfect. We thank you that through Christ, you are calling people to yourself. If you had not first pursued us, we would have never pursued you. We'd be stuck in our shame, embarrassed by the sins that we've committed, harassed by the powers of darkness and and the, the carnal appetites of the flesh that would lead us to death and despair. And we recognize this morning, standing before this table, that Christ has dealt with the the sin, the brokenness, and death once and for all. And so we cling to this Christ. We cling to the lamb, the lamb who was slain for our sin, the lamb who washes us, who purifies us in his own blood so that we might be radiant and have life to the fullest, Lord. We praise you for this and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.